Welcome to No Challenges Remaining, live in New York in the southwest corner of Bryant Park. I am here with Nick McCarville one day after his triumph <laughs> at Housing Works Bookstore and Cafe. In Soho, Nick, I'm sure our listeners have seen our promotions to this event, which No Challenges Remaining was happy to sponsor with you. I'm Ben Rothenberg. I don't know if I said that yet. Courtney and I were there, but you were putting on this show. And what was this whole event for you? What, how did this idea come and what was it and, and what did it mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about doing it for a while, sort of the intersection of queer culture and the sport of tennis. And this summer reached out to Brian Vahaley, who is continues to be the only out gay male either currently playing or from the past. From ATP, and yeah. From the ATP. And um, he graciously agreed to be a part of this event to share his story. And then Bennett just kind of grew from there. Casey Delacqua got roped into it last minute. We had a, a lot of players we, you and I, have been in touch with about yep. uh, doing some sort of part of the event. It ended up being the two of them. And then we had a great video testimonial from James Blake about how um, athletes, straight athletes, can be allies to queer athletes on tour because basically just continuing the conversation of where is the queer movement? Where is it in tennis? It hasn't really made a lot of inroads as far as the, the men's side of tennis. Yeah. You can see the mark of, one thing I didn't feel like I did enough of last night is pay homage to Billie Jean and to Martina for everything that they've done in women's tennis because you'll hear Casey Delacqua talk about, it's fine, Yeah, everything's great. It's event She's like, I had no, it was, I mean. It, it I heard really, I've heard similar things from players too and I was, talk, I was doing more on this topic during the market court, you know, dust up a couple, last, a couple years ago now. Um, and I guess it's still going because the arena is still named after her. You know, I was talking to Lindsay Davenport about it, I think, and she was just sort of like, when she was on tour, like in the, started in the early 90s, like it was just a non-event. There were players who were, who were lesbians or players who weren't, and they just sort of all coexisted and it wasn't like an event or it wasn't any drama. And that's why to her, like the Margaret Court stuff seemed so, rang so like bizarrely. She's like, why would you care? Like just people living their lives, doing their thing. And so that's the attitude in women's tennis, but men's tennis is different for sure. And it's different because I feel like, I've heard people say also in, in women's sports, it's like being out and gay is almost like sort of confirming a stereotype in some way, and men's is much more counter to the expected. And you'll hear Brian talk about the culture of conquests and stuff like that on yeah. the ATP and everything, which I thought was really interesting. And also, and one other thing which I thought was interesting too, some of you might have heard Brian's interview he did with John Wertheim on his podcast uh, early last, last year. year. Yeah. And he was saying that the reaction to that was not like as positive as he might have expected, which I thought was interesting too. And so, yeah, those, all those things were... were yeah, I just thought, you know, uh, Casey is as affable as they come. I mean, your listeners will know Casey Delacqua really well. But I just love the ability to have both of them on stage because they have such different experiences. Yeah. And for Brian to say that he had all this, you know, negativity and vitriol and thousands of emails coming, I mean, that's... That's scary. Yeah, it, it is. And, and the bravery that it took for him at, in his late 30s, 10 years after retiring from bro tennis, obviously it's going to take someone in the men's game to feel really at home with themselves, really at homo with themselves, <laughs> to feel like at they can- At home with their homo. Exactly, <laughs> to feel as though, we got there in the end, yeah. to feel as though they can share this publicly. And I say this in the event, this is not a outing, you know, we're not trying to ask someone to come out through this, we're trying to share Brian's story, Casey's story, move the conversation forward in the sport, I think a lot of people will have heard Roger Federer be asked by the boys at the Body Serve last yeah. week in Cincinnati about the issue. And you can hear Roger gave a great answer, but you can hear that he 
wasn't necessarily prepared for. It's it. not a topic that no. he was like expecting, or I don't not. think he knows Jonathan by sight. If he knew what the body surf was, he might have had a better idea it was coming. But he, you know, but he answered it. I thought decently well. He certainly caught off guard, caught flat-footed a little bit on the question, but didn't give any bad answer. Just, but it's not something that was clearly at the forefront of his mind. But it is at the forefront of your mind, I guess. You know, your experience in tennis, and that's part of why, as you said, the beginning. And you were getting, you can't see this on the audio, but you know, you're getting pretty emotional. To, you probably hear it a little bit. Uh, pretty emotional at the start of it because it's such a big turnout in this, you know, for this thing that was very, very personal to you. Yeah, no, it was personal to me. I actually, before we started recording, I told you I was more nervous doing that than a lot of the interviews I do live to camera or whatever. And I just, I worked at Housing Works at the bookstore where this was held, my first job in New York. I had, this was my brainchild in May. I, I started talking to you about it uh, six weeks ago. Yeah. and. I um, I was overwhelmed actually. I mean, we had over 170 people come, yeah. which was incredible. I mean, we were we were aiming for triple digits. We wanted to hit 100, and we were at about 120, and then all of a sudden it was like there was a line down the block. There I was. didn't see the line that well, but I heard there was a line down <laughs> the block. I've seen pictures. Yeah, yeah. that's so, surreal for you. It was surreal. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think it was just a cool. There's so much energy in queer culture around tennis. Like it's a yeah. sport we gravitate towards, yeah. and so I think for. Um, I think for this evening to have that population, especially in New York, come out. I mean, if it would have been something completely different, I feel like the energy could have been the same. But this was what I chose for this time, and I'm hoping this is the start of something new. They're not going to be in the audio part of this, but they're also contributions from your friends, uh, your bewigged friends. Uh, Francoise. Francoise. I knew that one. And then the other, <laughs> give me the other name. Irina, Trina, Karina. Zalutskaya Kukanova. Yes. And, They're tennis drag queens. And Francoise de Campois or something. De de Campois. Yeah, de and de they were they were outstanding. Sure. They did they tribute later <laughs> the night, so I just brought it home in a fun way. Yeah, and, so we wanted that yeah. piece too. And David Thorpe is actually a good friend of mine. He is the documentarist. AKA who did Francoise. Francoise. And she he did Do I Sound Gay, the documentary, which is incredible if you haven't watched it. But he's a huge tennis fan. We met working at Housing Works together ten years ago. And I asked him to do this because he had a public access show um, <laughs> called Holding Court, which Bud Collins was featured on, John Wertheim was featured on back in 2002. And it, so this it, was... It was amazing. Because <laughs> he came up, she came up to me too. Francoise came up to me and said like with her, you know, the jewels like on her face yes. and everything, full makeup, full drag, full tennis dress. Um, and was like, I follow you on Twitter. Like, it was like <laughs> surreal having this drag queen be like, oh yeah, I follow your tweets. This is great. And, we, and we, speaking of that, we had a lot of NCR listeners come out to the event, which was great. Also, yeah. shout out to Shola and Juan and all these people who I hadn't met before who were loyal listeners. So some of them, whose name I recognize from emails or tweets we get, so that was great. And then a lot more. And just, it was clearly, it's a, kind of a niche within a niche the gay tennis scene, but it was uh, clearly very passionate and vibrant. Well, and as, as people, yeah, it was. And well, as people will hear in the interview, it's obviously, we bring up Ryan, and then we bring Casey as well. But to me, it was trying to be as all-encompassing to the niche niche of it as possible. That's why we had the drag queens. Uh, USTA diversity team was there. Was a diversity rep there? Athlete Ally was there. MTG, which is the Gay Tennis League, was there. Um, a lot of NCR people. We had so much support from NYJTL, from Racket Magazine. I mean, I really tried to spread across and get as many gays as possible. <laughs> at the event and and the idea was to have a conversation that hadn't been had before and I think we did that um, and I, I just continuously uh, I'm so impressed with Brian he handled himself wonderfully yeah. uh, I think he's so well spoken he's smart 
he's in his late 30s. He he's for, he's fully formed this feeling, and you'll hear him talk about why he waited so long to come out to and publicly with John last year on the SI podcast, yeah. and then why he chose to do this event, which was even a further dive into his life. Yeah, so here we go. With no further ado, here is Nick McCarville introducing Brian Mahaley and later Casey DeLocco will join on stage. And let's talk to this in advance. Do you have an outro song you want to hear for this episode? Let's go way to the end. I'll slap something on oh the end of this. Oh my gosh. I, like there, I don't know if there is a, an anthem for this kind of event. It's got to be some, can it be a RuPaul? Anything. Uh, RuPaul, Shout anything. Out, I can find right? that. All right. Okay. Um, so please, please, please give a very warm welcome to Nick McCarville. Thank you. Thank you. You guys, I I worked at this bookstore. This was my ooh, this was my very first job in the city. Uh, I was a sales manager here when I moved to New York uh, ten years ago. Next month, um, and you don't become a New Yorker until ten years, right? So I'm almost there. Um, but I am so excited. This is overwhelming for us. Uh, we put this event together starting in the spring. Um, and I'm so excited for the conversation that we're going to have tonight. Um, and the power in this room is incredible. And um, hi to all of you watching on Facebook Live. Hopefully that stream is strong, Ben Rothenberg. Yes, yes. <laughs> and if it's not, we'll blame Courtney, right? <laughs> I'm really proud of this night. And um, before we dive into it, there's been so many people who have helped put it together, um, including the drag queens who will be up on stage who look absolutely fabulous. Um, round of applause for, another round of applause for Francoise and Irina Trina. <laughs> so, um, the U.S. Open starts on Monday, and uh, it's the 50th U.S. Open of the Open Era, and once again, there will be no out gay males in the main draw. And actually, as far as we know, there are no out gay males in pro tennis right now actively. Um, there are, I'm sure, plenty of them, but none of them who have chosen to speak out um, in a way to share themselves with all of us. So. We're gonna be discussing that, and we're also here to celebrate the many out lesbians who are on tour right now. There's a lot of them, which is awesome. And I'm, I'm also delighted to say that we have a special guest tonight who I will bring up in just a minute. When, when I initially had this discussion, and I have to thank Caitlin Thompson from Racket Magazine, she's not here tonight, but I met with her at the French Open and I said, I've been thinking about doing this event for a while and I, you know, how do we activate this? How do, how do we make this a real thing? Because the conversation we will have tonight will only help forward um, the conversation in tennis. And all of you for you know, whatever reason or whatever way, you all play tennis or you're involved in tennis or you're here because you're passionate about tennis. Um, but the Pro Tennis Tour is a weird place. I've been on it now for about five years and as a journalist, and it's not what you'd expect week in and week out. And I think we see all of it on TV, and it comes through the television in a certain way and on Twitter and on Instagram, but it's a very, very different place. Um, so I'm very excited. Um, if you have not, who got a Martini Navratilova? Who's drinking a Martini Navratilova? Yes? 
Yes, good. Can I get a martini now, Rachelova? Bar, is that possible? Um, who got the uh, jelly, what is it? The jelly bean queen? Oh, the jelly bean. I like jelly bean queen better. Did anyone get that? It's tequila, right? Yes. Yeah, so I'm excited for the conversation we're going to have tonight. And not only the conversation, I think, in pro tennis, but this is a celebration, obviously, of all of us to be here, to be ourselves, to, to celebrate this great sport. Um, and the queens are going to do that later with us because it's just another iteration of um, how beautiful this community is. And I know that we have a lot of allies here as well. Um, we've got an awesome ally who's going to speak to you um, on video in just a few minutes. But I think it's about time to bring up our first featured guest. He was, oh, is that my drink? Thank you so much. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Thank you, Francoise. Oh, no. Okay. He was, I, I'm in my comfort zone here. He was the world number 64, uh, a career high in March of 2003. He defeated, I think, many people's crush in this room, Juan Carlos Ferrero, on his way to the quarterfinals at Indian Wells. He was an All-American at Virginia, the NCAA runner-up, along with many other accolades. Um, he played all four majors in singles, had wins over Fernando Gonzalez, Tommy Ribeiro, the Bryan brothers in doubles, Sam Query, and Michael Chang. He, he won five challenger events, and in 2007, he retired due to a shoulder injury. He came out last year on John Wertheim's much-beloved Sports Illustrated Beyond the Baseline podcast, and this week he has been featured on Tennis.com, thanks to our friend Jonathan Scott, and today he was featured in the Daily Telegraph in London in a great article written by Charlie Eccleshire. Um, he, he is the only uh, current or former out gay male in tennis right now, and for that reason, he's here tonight, and I know so many of you are excited to hear from him. Please give a warm welcome to Brian Vahaley. <laughs> Hi. Do you want a Martini Navratilova? I would love one. Oh, can we get a Martini Navratilova? <laughs> not yet, He's not, not yet, not yet. No, yet. bring him one. It's no, fine. No, not yet. It's okay. First of, first of all, welcome. I'm Thank so you. excited. We, You guys, we've been talking about this event for weeks. Um, <laughs> we met a couple hours ago. I think Brian was a little overwhelmed by my enthusiasm for this <laughs> event. Um, but I, I'm so honored that you said yes. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys for being here. This is great. This is great. Okay, so before we get into your coming out, which we'll talk about a little bit, but you grew up in Atlanta, and you grew up in a conservative Catholic family, and you make your way through the upper echelons of tennis, and eventually you're a, a touring pro. But I'm guessing a lot of what shaped you as a little boy um, sort of inhibited you in a way to come out or to feel comfortable because if you've read any of Brian's interviews or if you've listened to the SI podcast it wasn't something you were necessarily at peace with when you were on tour. Yeah I mean it, so again I grew up Catholic my family from Atlanta in the south it was not the most um, you know wasn't the most accepted but I also frankly didn't have a lot of exposure to it. Thank you. 
this could help. Uh, so for me, it was, um, I think one of the hardest parts is you sort of had this inclination that this was sort of back there and behind it, behind you, but I wasn't necessarily prepared to have that discussion with myself. So for me, uh, tennis became actually a really great escape. And so a lot of the times that I was training early in the mornings, training after school, um, it was a great way to not have to deal with this. Um, and so for me, whether it was through the junior days, through college, through into the pro tour, there was, it was just always sort of a reason not to have to deal with it. Um, and the more that I committed time to tennis, the better I got, the better I would, the more attention you're getting as a result of being a professional player, um, the more reason to sort of push it down the road. So then, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit, we'll fill in the gaps, but you retire in 2007 because of a shoulder injury. You had a few surgeries, it didn't work, obviously, that right. ended a lot of tennis careers, the shoulder. Um, yeah, and, and that was frustrating too. Back in those yeah. days, college tennis was not what it is today. To be, I just was at the Wimbledon semifinals and to see Kevin Anderson, John Isner competing against each other. You know, when I went to college, um, you know, I was basically written off as a player and it was going to sort of, if you're going to prioritize education, then you're not prioritizing your sport. So when I had shoulder surgery, I had a couple of them in 2007, um, you know, basically at that point you're 28 years old, it's time to move on. And uh, it is a little frustrating to see so many of the guys that I played with that are still out there playing. Uh, and it makes it hard. It makes it hard to come back to the open and watch these people that I have competed against, that I have beat, that are still out there doing it in their mid-30s. And I sort of felt like at 28, I was going to be washed up after a couple surgeries. So um, I'm ready for them to retire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is weird. When I was going through Brian's head-to-head uh, -head list, I mean, a lot of the guys you played are still out there on tour. Brian, go. maybe, do you want to announce your comeback to Facebook Live? No. Come on. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, what I wanted to jump to then is that discussion that you had last year with John Wertheim, and we'll fill in the gaps in between, but you went from not necessarily being out to yourself or struggling with that aspect of your life on tour, dating women. Um, I think some of you have probably seen the, s the spread in people <laughs> of Brian's dating portfolio and how you're out after the perfect woman, but that's a big jump from obviously in time as well but for you to make that decision to come out and not just I mean you were living as an out gay man in your private life since you left the tour right. but why did you decide to do what you did last year with John so after the pro tour it was certainly a big self-discovery time I mean as in Atlanta I finally started dating for the first time uh, went to I think my first you know, my first or second gay bar at that point it was all very uh, I was finally exploring that part of myself that I think I was scared to do back when I was playing. Um, as that started to come about and I got a little bit more comfortable, I, I started to, you know, I had to come out to my family, come out to some of my close friends. That was its own story. Um, but, uh, you know, once that point in time came, there's sort of that question of, all right, how public do I want to be with this? I recognize how unique my story was in comparison, um, you know, to other athletes, certainly no other tennis player. Um, but I wasn't ready. That was just something for me. Um, you know, I worked really hard. I started competing when I was four and five years old. I have given my entire life to the sport and there was just, just intense fear to be known as the gay tennis player. And I just, number one, I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready for the potential um, uh, backlash that I could potentially receive uh, from so many different people. Tennis is a very conservative sport. And so I knew I wasn't necessarily, I, I didn't actually know if I'd be open with welcome arms or not. And that wasn't a level of um, uh, pressure that I was ready to put on myself. I didn't know how my family would actually react to that. Um, and so it sort of felt like for me an, an opportunity to sort of coast into the, 
retirement years. Uh, and I, it really wasn't until kids when everything changed. So the kids changed the approach. Kids have a way of changing a lot of things. Um, so I got married to my husband, Bill, uh, back in 2015, um, who is here tonight somewhere. Hi, Bill. He's um, right there. There he is. Um, so, and we decided to have kids very quickly. That, that was something for us that was really important. And your lens on life just changes unbelievably. All of a sudden, I felt um, I wasn't being my authentic self uh, in front of them. And I know, obviously, they're still too young. They just turned two a month ago. Um, but I feel this sense of responsibility to um, be a leader in this space. I, it's hard to explain, my, my, just my perspective on all of this changed. And I thought to myself, John uh, Wardheim reached out to me and said, hey, would this be something you'd be interested in talking about? And um, it just kind of felt like everything was ready at that moment. And, and it was a very, um, it was an amazing time for me personally to be able to do that. It certainly it can be tough at times because I had a lot of uh, people still trying to set me up with their daughters, which was just like weird and and like you're just like dancing around what you can and can't say and so it felt like an opportunity to to go down that path, but I also had to be prepared for the backlash or some some negative things that came with that and and um, you know there were some tough tough times, but I was more ready and I was more motivated because I had a family that that was behind me hmm, which is my perfect segue to our special guest, another special guest tonight who also has kids and told me recently that the kids really shaped how she felt. She's the winner of seven WTA doubles titles, runner-up in doubles at all four slams, the 2011 Roland Garros Mixed Doubles champion alongside Scott Lipsky. She reached world number three in doubles, 26 singles titles, 348 singles wins in her career, which is a couple more than you? Just a, <laughs> Just couple. a, few. <laughs> Just a few. 22 ITF titles, fourth round at the Australian Open in 2008, beating Amelie Moresma in the third round. Also at the AO in 2014, the US Open in 2014. She retired in April of this year, and she is out and proud. Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone, please welcome Casey Delacqua. You guys, so I, um, I Instagram messaged Casey, when was that, a couple months ago? And I was like, Casey, we're gonna do this event in New York. Are you gonna be there? And she's like, nah, not gonna be there. <laughs> and then lo and behold, I think I messaged you what, like a few days ago, and thankfully she's now working for Tennis Australia, helping um, the Australian Open with its player services. And I saw her the other day in New Haven, and I really cornered you in New Haven, That's okay. right? That's fine. Right? Uh, I'll be, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, how are you? Thank you so much for being here. No, that's okay. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, it's really nice to be here, and I'm glad that I could could be here. Um, yeah, I'm good. I'm enjoying retired life. Retired life's great. I'm not missing tennis at all, and certainly, um, <laughs> which is good. And being here, I think, validates that because I see what the players are doing, and I'm like, oh, I don't miss any of that at all. So, um, no, I'm really good. I'm just, um, yeah, back home in Australia with the family, and yeah, life's good. Well, the reason why I wanted to segue off of your kids, because you have two little ones as well, um, and you were saying that you felt like in your coming out story that the kids shifted things or changed for you as well. Because when, when it first came to light that you were a lesbian, you are a lesbian, that I remember it in the press being, you know, don't ask Casey about this, she doesn't want to be a poster child. And then things kind of organically shifted. 
Yeah, um, I didn't ever want to make it a big deal. It kind of resonates a lot what Brian was saying. You don't kind of want to be pigeonholed into just being that gay tennis player, I guess. So for me, um, yeah, it kind of happened quite organically and naturally. And um, my family and my friends, I had great experiences with all of my loved ones. I've had great support from a, from a very young age. So that was never the problem. Um, it was more when our son Blake was born um, in 2013 that it was actually here at the US Open and someone asked me why I hadn't played since Wimbledon through to the US Open and I basically just said I was at home, my partner gave birth to, the, to our first child and that was a really important time for me and I didn't make a big deal of it, I didn't want to make a big deal of it because to me um, people have kids every day and I didn't feel like our story was any different to anyone else's so I didn't actually think it was a, a big deal and um, yeah that's kind of how it happened and since then um, yeah it's not really been a big deal since then either. Brit, Brit, <laughs> it, it has been a big deal. It, it is a big deal uh, I think and um, you know we you look at what Martina and Billie Jean and Amelie and there's been so many leaders in the WTA on the women's side of things but Casey, in a lot of ways, you've carried that torch in this generation. I mean, I, I really feel like she has. Um, yeah, I, no, really. Be because for, and, and there are plenty of, there are especially plenty of female players who choose not to be publicly out. And that's their choice, that's fine. And there's a few former men's players who choose not to be out. But the, the choice for you to live out loud. I mean, I, I know it was maybe unavoidable because you and Amanda did decide to have kids. Yeah, the kids, um, the kids do. They teach you a lot, don't they? And there's a, there is. There's a huge responsibility to make sure that those children feel um, just like any other family because you are. They're being raised um, in beautiful households with beautiful parents. And for me, it was really important that my kids knew that and um, yeah we teach our kids now there's different families all around the world and um, yeah Blake's really proud he goes to school and tells everyone he's got two mums and um, yeah it, the kids definitely for me as well change things yeah you are their teachers you're the guy you know you guide them along the way in life and um, yeah so that was really important that I did that for our kids too yeah so uh, one thing I wanted to talk about we talked about this a little bit on the phone is it's hard to explain the pro tennis tour as like an actual everyday life because we travel the globe. We, you know, you guys as players and for us as media and there's a whole, there's a whole world that travels in that world. But what is it that maybe makes it harder to come out in that space? Or what is it, to me it might be that it's an individual sport that you don't necessarily have a team to rely on, but Overall, the, the general feeling is a little bit more conservative uh, as, a, as a tennis touring world. Yeah, I mean, I think tennis, I mentioned earlier, is extremely conservative. I think the challenge, as I would probably think about it back in 2007 too, um, you know, it's a very small group of people and there is a lot of, you know, homophobic jokes that are happening on a, on a daily basis and you're sort of consistently seeing that and so, the fear is if you all of a sudden share this part of yourself um, and you know, you're, gonna, you're certainly going to have a lot of people who don't agree with it, don't accept it, you have this ability to sort of ostracize yourself and this is a, it's a very small community. You're, you're practicing with these people every day. You're literally going to your competition at times or future competition saying, hey, can we practice at 9 a.m. and then I got to find somebody else at 3 p.m. So uh, those relationships are critical and so the fear of potentially being 
ostracized by your coworker, the fear of, of going into certain countries and what their response is gonna be to it, because it can be a lot worse depending on, on where you're playing. Um, it's a big, it's sort of a big risk, and um, I think is wonderful in these sort of discussions and communities, but when you're in that small world like that, it is just very hard to, um, to take that step. Do you feel like, because I think you're, you started on the tour in like 2002 and then just retired, so in that 15 years, I mean, I know that there's different cultures, right? The ATP feels different, and then also the challenger circuit culture is much different than the actual pro tour uh, for you in those 15 years, did you feel like things changed or shifted? Because, I mean, remember in 99, Amelie was essentially forced out at the Australian Open. But how did you feel like things changed? Yeah, no, I certainly feel like things have changed for the better, um, certainly. And I probably do feel it's probably different for men and women. Um, to be honest, my experience... Um, I've always had a great experience with the women's tour. I'm very fortunate... Um, that I haven't, can't say I've had a bad experience um, or an encounter, so I'm very fortunate in that sense. I have a really close-knit group of Australian friends, I guess, which helps that they're kind of like my support buddies that I would always, they might go to people. Um, but then I also have a lot of other friends on tour and I've always just found like the more authentic and the more you are, you're just yourself, that can, that people just see like you're just you, it's, you're not any different. And I've just tried to always um, stay true to that. but. Yeah, I feel like definitely times have changed, of course. And I think what Brian was saying, even when, when you feel ready, when and I felt ready once we had our children and I happened to still be on tour and playing at that time, I think it, that process um, probably made it a lot easier for me too because once you have kids, there's just this real, like, this is all good, like, I'm going to do this. And, yeah, there's a real sense of clarity. You were saying after you did the SI interview that, and it's funny, I feel like we hear coming out stories and, you know, I didn't get one negative message and everything was so positive, but you said you had quite the opposite experience after SI. Yeah, I think it was funny. I remember doing the podcast and then I sort of, I hung up the phone and I was sort of curious what was life going to look like after that point. Uh, I think it was about 48 hours later. I, I, well, a couple of maybe expectations I had. Number one, would some of my former colleagues or players reach out to me and sort of what would that look and feel like and, and unfortunately did not hear from any of them. Um, but what was more challenging at the time and really difficult for my husband and I is I probably received about two to 3,000 emails from people. They somehow found my inbox and just started sending me like massive amounts of hate email where they told me where my house was, they were gonna come take my kids. Uh, they were not going to torture, you know, these kids in, a, in an environment with gay dads. It's not right. A whole church group is going to be coming. And in the middle of the night, make sure that you have an alarm system. And it just kept cranking for, like, I would say probably three or four days where just emails just kept coming in one after the other after the other. So um, it was tough. Um, but I also felt ready for it. It's hard, it's hard to explain, but I think that's part of the reason for me that I needed to do it when I did it and when, why I think it's so important to not push anybody out. It's a, it's a process for everybody because you really have to be comfortable with that potential negative reaction. Have I gotten tons of wonderful reactions since then? Of course. So I don't mean to make it sound like it has been a, it was all terrible. But for that, I would say uh, four or five day period, it was, um, it was pretty bad. Well, and I think, too, one of the pieces that we so agreed on, and I think you would agree as well, the, the whole premise of this event wasn't to ask anyone to come out. That's not what we're trying to do here. It's just to further this conversation because... 
first of all, the energy in this room is amazing around the queer community and around the tennis community, but the intersection of that doesn't happen very often. And the pro tour can, can be a scary place. And, and I think for on the WTA, it might be a little bit different because just of the cultures and, and where they are. But where you got that negativity, you've also had, and I will let you dance around this as much as you'd like, but you've, you've also had a very public legend who's been really negative towards you and towards your family. Yeah, it, um, yes, I have. <laughs> so, um, yeah, back in 2013 when um, our son was born, Margaret Court obviously um, wrote an article about my family, <laughs> which everyone knows about. But, um, yeah, I just, I left it at the time. I put it away and it wasn't worth responding to. It was one of those things that kind of wanted a reaction, but it wasn't worth it. Um, but then the marriage equality um, debate started in Australia last year. And like I said, I've never kind of been a spokesperson or wanted to be that yeah. person, but I just felt it was a really important time to use my platform. And I don't know, part of me doesn't think that many people even know me in Australia, but suddenly I spoke up and then um, it kind of really made an impact. And yeah, it was unfortunate, um, obviously, that there was a little bit of banter <laughs> with Margaret caught back and forth between us, but I just felt it was really important to, to speak up and um, stick up for, for that community and that vote, um, particularly in Australia, it was really important. So yeah, I'm really proud that I did. and. Um, even last year I was rewarded as Sports Personality of the Year back in Australia and it was um, <laughs> it was um, it was just really weird because I and I've said it plenty of times but I felt like I was just being myself so it's nice to be rewarded for just being yourself but um, it was a really um, it was a really important time in Australia and yeah I spoke up and yeah I'm really glad I did. Yeah no we are too. Um, so it's so important for people like Brian and Casey to speak up and for you when you did it, when you chose, um, even though it was 10 years removed from your pro career, it's been so powerful. And the, the fact that I really do feel like you've carried the torch in a lot of ways. And we watch Alison Van Oetvunk kiss her girlfriend at Wimbledon, which is amazing after she uh, beat Garbinier this year. But it's really important too to have allies within the game as well. So now, Jillian, now you can hit play on that video. <laughs> and the sexy lead-in music for James Blake. Seamless back there, baby. Looking good. On whether you agree or disagree with uh, any of their thoughts, any of their ideas, anything they do on and off the court, uh, just be welcoming, uh, open to talking and having having a dialogue with anyone uh, on tour. I think we move the conversation forward in terms of gay athletes um, by having education. Uh, I think the ATP has an ATP tour university. Uh, I remember when I went to it, you learn about your finances, you learn about media training. I think it's just important to learn about tolerance, learn about uh, inclusion, and maybe have someone like a Michael Sam, a Jason Collins, a Brian Behaley come and speak to the, the athletes and let them know that it is a safe place, that um, the ATP tour can be uh, can be very tough when you're on the court, but hopefully off the court uh, can be a very uh, helpful community, uh, can be like a fraternity um, that is inclusive to all. I am encouraged uh, by what Brian Mahaley has done, his courage, and um, what hopefully will happen in the future. Um, I, I, I would love to see someone, we know just by numbers that there have been plenty on tour, um, so I'd love to see them have the courage to come out while they're on tour. 
and see the players be extremely welcoming. Let them know in the locker room that that's okay, that it's safe uh, to be out on the ATP tour and go about uh, living their dream of playing professional tennis. How about it from James Blake? Pretty cool. So, I mean, I have thoughts off of that, but what strikes you of what James said? I think for the, the biggest thing for me is that there is a thing called ATP University, which you go through at a certain age or when you make it to a certain ranking. Or, and basically, it's finances, PR, communications, you know, how do you manage your body, et cetera. But what James is suggesting there is that tolerance, um, some diversity, inclusion training, something of that aspect should be included in ATPU, which would be a great first step, right? Yeah, I mean, I think education is critical. I think you go to the ATP University, um, I think, two, when you're ranked 250? WTA, Did you? Oh, WTA, never mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, you go and it's a couple days, you've got to go before you uh, continue on tour. I think education is certainly a critical first step. The thing that's been most exciting to me, really, frankly, is the last probably week, two weeks since you've sort of made this announcement to see Kevin Anderson, to see Roger Federer's comments. Um, I know Andy Murray, when he was making comments back Ooh. at the, um, uh, at the Australian Open. That's the biggest thing that I feel like we, I missed back when I was playing, seeing really the best players standing behind this and really believing it and, and willing to do it at no, um, no benefit really to themselves. They're doing it because they think it's the right thing to do. I would have loved to have that level of role models uh, really during that time. And I think as much as administrations can sort of talk and give education, and I think that's great, and I think that's a good first step, there is nothing like players that you admire or you compete against and with giving their support that I think provides the environment for a future uh, college player, future pro player, future junior player who's seeing those comments from Federer. I, I mean, I just think that's, I, I, that to me is what it's all about and how we're going to really create change. While we're on it, do you want to go ahead and play? So this is Roger last week, uh, the Body Serve podcast. I asked both Roger and Kevin Anderson about this very event. Roger, that's an event coming up in New York City featuring Brian Vahali, who is a now-out gay former pro ATP player. And uh, Kevin Anderson tweeted in support of it, also had some very kind words to say uh, for some of the gay people that he knows in his life. Um, I'm wondering if you have a sense of why we haven't had an openly gay tennis player on the ATP tour, and if there's um, anything you can say as to whether the ATP would be a safe and receptive place for a player to come out. Yeah, I think no problem at all. It's, yeah, it is true. Yeah, we have not had it. Uh, don't know why, you know. Um, if we haven't had any or some players just uh, chose not to do it, you know, I think it'd be totally accepted, no problem, you know. And I don't know, what tournament are they? It's, a, it's just a, an event celebrating okay. like uh, culture and tennis and okay. diversity. That's yeah. good. Yeah, no, I'm all for it. It's a, it's a good thing, you know. I, I'm all for it, you know. That everybody, uh, you know, doesn't matter where you come from, what you, who you are. But I'm, I'm all for it. That you're open about it. That I think you'll feel better in the process, to be honest. And everybody should support one another on this planet, you know. It's all good. Yeah. So we can pause it there. Um, that's, I mean, that's really, really powerful. Out of, you know, out of anything, out of all the work that we put in and, and so many other people, 
in this room to help promote this event, the fact that, and Roger was surprised by that question. I mean, he didn't know it was coming, obviously Jonathan asked him, but the power of someone like him speaking out, you're saying that's gonna get the most. That I mean, the, the, the fact that we're having this conversation in and around the US Open, I mean, again, I can't say enough, it's such a conservative sport, so the fact that we're having a you know gay and queer event at the US Open, that we're all coming together and celebrating, that it's being asked in a um, to the press, the fact that players are, commenting on it, you know, unsolicited, I think is, to me, this is the exact step you want. And then just the question is, when does that player come around? And I, when I was in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, I had a player who's rather publicly conservative say to me in the player lounge, Nick, that's a really cool event that you're doing in New York. I mean, it completely caught me off guard. And I said, yeah, we, we need to have more conversations like this. And he said, yeah, I totally agree. And I almost asked him to tweet about it, but I stopped <laughs> short of there. But it was just cool because a couple hours earlier, I was telling you this, we were doing something with another player and he just randomly said, oh, that's so gay about something nearby. And I was like, I haven't heard that in, I haven't heard that forever. And I was just, I was so taken aback, I didn't even have the chance to respond to it. So to have those two experiences and to see that there's a lot of work to be done and even, uh, you know, to, to a lot of the players that we reached out, I mean, I'm so thankful for both of you being here tonight. But honestly, a lot of the players that we reached out to just didn't really want to be a part of this, which is totally their choice. But the fact that we're having this conversation, it, it needs to happen. And we need to push the needle forward because otherwise, culturally within the Pro Tour, things aren't necessarily going to change. What do you feel like are the, next, the best next steps overall for this sort of movement? Yeah, I'd probably agree. Education, um, just being, I guess, spoken about. Um, yeah, tolerance, inclusion. It's not even as well as obviously the gay conversation. It's about um, race. It's, there's uh, so many conversations that um, need to be had. But yeah, I think certainly the education factor is a big, big step forward for players. For players, particularly, yeah. What do you feel like is, I mean, I don't know if you've had individuals come to you for advice or reach out to you about trying to navigate their own sexuality or coming out stories, or how do you, how do you help speak to athletes who might necessarily be struggling with this? Um, yeah, I genuinely haven't had anyone that's actually. Really? No, no, no one's, one. no, no one's, um, yeah, no one's actually ever um, approached me. I'm very approachable, but <laughs> um, no one has. Um, yeah, but obviously um, I hope that they feel um, if they needed to that they certainly could because I'd certainly welcome them with open arms. And I just, I'm very fortunate and I appreciate the fact that a lot of people haven't had my experience because I know how difficult it is, but I can genuinely say I have had a really positive experience and I'm very grateful for that. I certainly have had some negative stuff happen too, but the overwhelming sense of um, positive for me has um, really made the whole thing quite I'm not going to say easy, but manageable. Um, so I'm very fortunate, but I, like I said, I appreciate it's not the same for everyone. You've had quite a few, especially college students, reach, college athletes reach out to you, right? College athletes, some in the early stages of the Pro Tour and the Futures and Challengers part. Um, I always want to be as accessible to them as possible. Again, I feel like I have, I have lived the entire journey of not addressing it to avoiding it to kind of avoiding it to coming out but not telling anyone. Like, it's just this whole thing that I have done. Uh, so for me, I always want to be as open as possible. I've had a lot of people reach out to me and, and ask, just want to have questions. I think it's actually 
you know, when I was playing, there wasn't the sort of social media days, so people really can't go out and sort of explore themselves without feeling like somebody's going to take a picture and they're going to get in sort of trouble for it. So, um, or not even trouble, just be outed, and then they sort of can't go back and they're not ready for that. So I certainly try and be as open as I can to let people know I'm happy to have a conversation. It's always going to be confidential. Um, and I think it's just, again, that is what I miss more than anything. I just needed somebody to talk to. So certainly I try and be there when I can. Is, uh, you know, sporting culture in general, uh, we did a panel at uh, Major League Baseball this spring talking about the queer culture there. Billy Bean's done incredible work at the MLB. Um, but does tennis feel behind to you overall? I mean, we've seen what Jason Collins has been able to do, um, Gus Kenworthy and Adam Rapon at the Olympics this year, Robbie Rogers, Tom Daly. I mean, there's been a lot of success stories, but does it feel like perhaps the tennis tour still has a, a long, long way to go? I don't know what you would say about that. I feel like the WTA is a little different. I, the ATP, it's, it just feels like a lot of conversations aren't being had there. I don't know. I mean, this is just really the first time I feel like I was even asked to have a conversation about it and really talk about my experience. I sort of, again, did John Wardheim's podcast. It was sort of a, for me, a very easy sort of behind the scenes way of sort of presenting that. But there really wasn't much follow up. There wasn't a lot of desire to really think about how we expand this conversation and continue it and, and talk about education or really that next step or what it could be like. It sort of died a little bit. So I, that's why I'm excited for this. I think this gets it started again. Um, but for me, I can't speak to what it's like to be a professional baseball or you know, an NFL guy, but it, um, it does feel a little behind. Does it, uh, to close up, and then we're gonna open up for Q&A, so have those questions ready, those appropriate questions ready, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Brian was saying um, that you know, there's a lot of homophobia that still persists, I think, on the men's tour. Does it feel like that on the women's tour as well? Yeah, it's funny, I, I would say no. Um, Can I also just I, note that Casey Delacqua is the nicest human no, being I'm in not. the world? So. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not always. But I, um, <laughs> I, I feel like, and this might sound terrible too, but I feel like the girls on tour just don't care enough about other people to care. Amazing. Does that? That is so true. Does that sound like, so true. That's the that's the poll quote. There it is. Like <laughs> the evening. No, I, no, just in a sense of like everyone's got their own world, their own life, yeah. their own <laughs> desires, their own goals. That no one kind of gets involved in each other's. Um, like I have my core group of friends, but that I don't. I hope that didn't sound terrible. But no, I, I, I genuinely mean, feel like yeah. it's a good thing because I feel like no one gets caught up in each other's business. It's just. Everyone's, everyone wants to beat each other and um, so yeah, you kind of, it doesn't seem to be, well I, that was my experience to be honest with you. <laughs> I feel like you're having a unique experience and we congratulate you that, oh, for that. I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay, uh, questions. I can barely see anything so there's a hand. Yes, tell me. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the players and how they've directed the movement, but then also sponsors and the media, the rest of us. Um, you mean how we've impacted it or how it'll... Sure, yeah. I mean, you were talking about sponsorships. I mean, that was maybe one thing that... Because you were kind of on that cusp of you needed to keep those sponsors, right? Those sponsors. Yeah, I mean, that certainly was a big thing. And I think now seeing with Gus, Gus Kentworthy and uh, Adam Rapone, like the uh, success they have had from sponsors and financially, it sort of feels like that part has sort of moved aside a little bit. But certainly back when I was playing, and again, this was 10 years ago, 
Um, yeah, I mean, it, that would have been a huge financial risk to probably take, and you'd likely would have been ostracized and probably pulled from some of the sponsors. So uh, I'm, for, I'm very happy to see that that's no longer the issue. I think the biggest potential distraction out there is just how much attention this person gets, and it starts to be a little overwhelming. Tennis is a very difficult individual sport where you are traveling 40 weeks a year by yourself, you are competing by yourself. Often, sometimes you're, you know, unless your friends are there, you're eating by yourself. It is, can be very isolating. So to compound that challenge with so much sort of attention around uh, your sexuality, that's a huge distraction when you're already trying to figure out how to compete in front of 10,000 people with TV watching, with sort of being analyzed every step of the way. So. Um, that's why to me it's just creating that foundation where I want everybody to celebrate this person. I would love if there was financial opportunities that came, but more than anything, then you want them to be able to relax and compete and, and do even better and have it just continue to move on and, and not have the interesting um, adjective that goes with them to be anything to do with their sexuality. Yeah, and I would say too, I mean, in putting on this event or trying to create this event and create bounce out of it, I mean, it was somewhat of a luke. I mean, we've got great representation from tennis media to the corporate side to the USTA is here you know there's a lot of us that live and breathe this sport as a living but um, you know did I did I necessarily have commentators approaching me in the hall asking me for tickets you know that just didn't necessarily happen because it's still sort of that it still doesn't necessarily feel like people feel comfortable and I find myself sometimes not necessarily feeling comfortable being out on the pro tour too yes go ahead so you guys have been incredibly brave in, in coming out. It feels like the next person that comes out will need to be equally, if not more, brave. And it feels like a lack of leadership from the tours on these issues. If you look at comparable sports, you talked about baseball, English Premier League with the kick homophobia out sport campaign, which started 15 years ago. The tours have to create a more conducive environment for people coming out, and there's no leadership from the tours, at least from a fan perspective. There's no even changing of the brand during sort of gay pride month. Like, what, what can we do to try and encourage the tours to be more, to show more leadership and create that environment where someone can feel protected if they do come? Maybe you can speak to the WTA. So I, I sit on the board of directors of the USTA. So one of the big reasons that I got back in the game of tennis is I wanted to get not only in the business side of tennis, but to impact and affect this change. So I want to be sitting in that room when we're having discussions about the US Open. Um, <laughs> um, but when we're having discussions about the US Open, while we're doing things and, and impacting so many juniors across the country, how are we being considerate and thoughtful? How are we thinking about changing the tone and the conversation, knowing that there are other um, gay players that are out there? That's the most, I'm not as involved on the ATP side, I can just speak to the USTA, and I have been very impressed. I know there's somebody, DA Abrams, who's the Chief Diversity Officer, I've spoken to consistently. There's another woman, Donna, who's here tonight somewhere from the USTA, but I, um, I love to see their enthusiasm for it. Now the question is, how do we get them to not only talk the talk, but walk the walk and take the next step? And that's where I'm committed to staying on the board and making sure that it's not, a, not something they can just sweep under the rug. And Donna, I, maybe I'm wrong on this. The uh, most of the U.S. Open series events did Pride Nights this summer, right? Yeah. Which, okay. Awesome. Uh, what about from the WTA? Yeah. Should, I'll we, be, should we make Neil come up on stage? <laughs> I won't put Neil on the spot. Just kidding. But no, Neil. I'll be like because I've only just finished recently playing. I think my perspective is probably. Like, I've always just been very focused on playing at this point in time. I've only recently retired and I've been a bit quiet just at home with my family. So, um, yeah, I can't really, I haven't really been involved in 
a lot of that type of stuff or how it works or anything. So I can't really, yeah, say much. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> Other questions? Go ahead. Sandy. Hi, Sandy. I, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Sandy's asking about the ATP having openly gay employees. Um, and if the players are comfortable with them, why wouldn't they necessarily be comfortable with a, a fellow player coming out? I don't necessarily, I, I don't even want to sound too, when I was sort of describing my experience of, you know, a couple, last year, or a couple years ago, um, do I think players could be, I, I think seeing, sorry, let me start over. I think seeing what you heard Federer say, what you've seen these other players say, I do believe that all of the players have been around gay people before. I think they will probably respond uh, quiet, you know, maybe sort of step back a little bit at first, but again, they, I think the foundation is starting to come together where, again, if they're being um, uh, open and accepting to these other ATP tour employees, I think they could probably be the same way towards a player. Yeah, and I feel, I mean, I feel that a little bit of the player that came up to me in Toronto and I was like, that's a cool event. I mean, I wouldn't have expected him to say that ever, which was great. Uh, question, yes, go ahead. Uh, could you speak a little more about you as an out tennis journalist and what you've experienced in your five years? Um, so asking me about me, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, to the other journalists in the room, I, I think that, <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes the relationship is kind of at an arm's length because our jobs are to write stories about the athletes and our job isn't, I mean, I've developed a friendship with you over the years, but I, I mean, my, my job is not to be friends with the players. Yeah, and I wouldn't have been awkward. It was just probably more because you were a tennis journalist and I was probably worried about what you were going to write about my tennis. Yeah. As opposed to anything else. <laughs> I, I, um, no, I think that there's, at times, it's challenging to sort of be yourself and be upfront, but there's a lot of behind-the-scenes people in tennis that are out and open and gay, and I think it's up to us. I mean, that was part of the premise of this event when we talked about it is that showing that you know this community that you're all a part of or, or that a lot of you are part of that it exists on the tennis tour and we don't necessarily get to have those conversations with the players a lot so here's an opportunity to do so and I also just think you know living out loud and, and being who we are I, I think that is that reverberates with the players maybe if we don't even necessarily feel it or think it um, but yeah, I mean, it's a very macho, sporting, heteronormative culture. And a lot of times, you know, you're fighting against that. And for, for me, um, wearing like boxy Fila shirts and announcing things on a stadium court, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's, you know, that's the place I, I feel like I can most be myself. And I've even had people tell me, you need to change your voice and the way you speak so that you don't come off as but I, for me, it's kind of like, I like my voice. I, I'm fine with this sounding this way. And I think also that it'll, that'll change eventually, sort of, and David Thorpe and I have talked about this as well, of listening to a gay voice and how it's, how it's changed. I don't, sorry, Francoise. Okay, we have time for a couple more questions. <laughs> Go ahead. You say that and it's macho, but I feel like Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. How does that public perception interact with you mean that Tennis more has the reputation of being country club in that sense? Okay, so the macho culture, I mean maybe I'm misspeaking, but I feel like the heteronormativity of the tour is rampant. Yeah, I mean I think back to my days of playing, I mean you go again, you go, um, you know, it's super competitive on the court, um, then you come off the court, uh, you go into the, you're getting stretched or into the massage area and room and there's there's a lot of stories being shared of, of conquests on the tour, and it's a very, um, it, it, there's a, you, you learn a lot about people. Um, <laughs> things, things, things you can't forget. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know, I, I guess I assume that's just sort of sports in general, even as I think about some of my injuries, I spent a lot of time with some Major League Baseball guys. Um, it is, you know, a lot of these people, have been competing or trying to compete and dropped out of school in seventh, eighth, ninth grade. So this is their friendships, this is their home, so this is where they're gonna go and talk about this, um, you know, their, their, their conquests on the road. And it just, it, and because of that, it just gets more and more macho and everybody's trying to one-up each other. We are a very competitive group of people. So if somebody's gonna do that, then who's gonna go bigger, who's going bigger, and then it starts to get gross. <laughs> we, we have time for one more thing, for one more question, and I'll go to you, Shiv. But, and also, the, the fact that these players are going out on tour at 19, at 16, you know, as teenagers, and there's not a lot of education. I mean, you know, just the fact of, getting yourself cultured. I mean, we travel the world, but it's very bubble. I mean, it's a, it is a bubble, for sure. Is that how you feel, too? Mostly? Yeah. Okay. Shiv, go ahead. Close us out. So I sit on um, the USDA's Diversity and Inclusion Committee. And so something that we always talk about is how to enable and support particularly young players um, you know, to make them feel comfortable and things like that. And I think there's a tendency to always focus on uh, whether they're gay or their gender or their race or something like that. But the reality is, is that there are so many different components that go up into making someone's identity uh, that will sometimes marginalizing people if you're, if you're focusing on that. And mm. I'm interested to know for you guys, when you were younger and when you were, when you were training and being coached, um, do you wish that you had uh, been able to be out then with your coaches and things like that? Or actually, was it a good thing that that was not necessarily front and center so you can focus on? Okay, so asking about, you know, if, if uh, um, that was a nuanced question, Shiv. Um, basically, were, are you happy with the way things panned out, right? And that you weren't necessarily put in a box or the gay player, stamped as the gay player early in your career. I know at one point you said you felt like maybe it would have allowed you to play freer tennis if you would have been freer, or if you would have been out. Yeah, I mean, when I, if you, there's not many videos out there, but if you saw a video of me playing, I was a very angry player. <laughs> I drew a lot of energy off of being very angry and hating my opponents when I was playing, which I don't, I don't know what that was about, but I was, <laughs> that's what I was doing. Uh, your question about, you know, what could have been different? Let's, suppose, let's just suppose there was some education that was happening at an early age. You know, I, I have seen different pamphlets on like what to do if you have a gay student and read this and like this is how you talk to them. This is, that makes me want to scream. Like the thought of being, you know, at that age of, you know, 13, 14, 15 and being sort of pat on the head and like I understand little boy and this is what you're feeling. Um, no, I mean, that would have been a nightmare. Um, so that doesn't mean that it's not great for somebody else. 
for me and where I was in my growth and who I wanted to be. I just wanted to be feel as normal as I could. I wanted to be as accepted as I could. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I just wish there was role models out there and, and seeing this sort of positive affirmation that's happening out there, that's happening right now. That is what I miss the most, so that's what speaks to me. Doesn't mean those pamphlets don't matter, just don't give them to me. And I guess my experience was that I actually met my partner Amanda when I was like 22, 23, so I was pretty young, I would think anyway. So um, I guess from that standpoint, it was, like I said, in 2013, we had our son Blake and it was different, but before then, all my coaches knew I was always very open and honest, even with all my family. And so I think um, my experience from a very young age was always a really positive one. Um, but in 2013, when I did obviously announce that we um, get, like we had our first child, my tennis improved out of sight and I, I got to experience that feeling yeah. of, um, I had the best years of my career probably from that moment on. Um, I played some really great tennis. I played, had some great results prior to that, but I had that whole um, experience of playing free, being who I was. My family travelled with me. We took Blake into the creches at the tournaments around the world. Um, so I can, yeah, I got to experience that, which you obviously never did. So that's probably why my take on things is, and like, yeah, our kids go to the creche at the Grand Slams and it's... The daycare. The daycare, the daycare. sorry, <laughs> the creche daycare. Um, with all the other kids and yeah, it's all good. So I think, um, yeah, like I said, from a very young age, I was always, I always was very open and honest with all my coaches. I think, so we have to cap Q&A there, but I think I'm so happy that you were able to be here tonight because your experiences are so different yeah. and it's really incredible to see. And, and there were a lot of players that wanted to be here and to talk tonight and, and weren't able to make it. And there's stories I think that can, every player's experience is different. And especially for the players who are on the challenger circuit that aren't making big dollars and that are playing these challenger events that can be rough. I mean, just the quality of life is rough. It's really tough. And we're talking about the highest level. I mean, you know, you guys are rolling in it, right? You made a lot of money out there. So I think in general, it's, you know, at the top level, we're having this conversation, but imagine what's going on in the challengers and the futures and the pro circuit. This conversation is only getting started. I am so thankful to both of you. Thank you for letting me wrangle you into this, Casey Delacqua. Casey Delacqua, everyone. And there was a turning point for this event a few weeks ago, and I called Francoise, and I had dinner with Ben Rothenberg, and I was freaking out because I didn't think it was going to happen. And then Brian Vahaley emailed me and said, not essentially, well, essentially, fuck yes, I will do this event. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing your story, honestly.